if no one wants to answer, I'll go ahead and I'll give one of mine. Um, and specifically, I think it's a better setting simply because I got married last year, uh, this, well, January, so almost two years now. Um, and so, I don't know if it's like some type of disease that cripples a man when they get married, that they start to think that, um, that they think that they make the best decisions. Um, and then when they bring it up to their wife and they're like, that's probably not a good decision, but you still go with it anyway. And then you end up realizing it was the worst decision you could have made. Um, so that was one of my decisions. So uh, let me explain. Um, when we first got married, I remember we were having these ideas of wanting to um, move into a, a smaller apartment or a place that we were like, you know, within our budget or whatever. Obviously, at the time, um, we weren't really thinking much on like how the logistics of money and all of that was going to work because we were really focused on just getting married, getting past the wedding, and then after the wedding, enjoying our lives and everything would just be up and down from there. And obviously that this, that's not 100% true. Um, anybody who believes into that fallacy and to those who just got married and who are getting married, um, you're in for something really hard if you think you have some great expectations, especially the man. I want you to hear me. Um, because I've made some decisions I'm not proud of and then I have my wife telling me I told you so and then that kind of aggravates me even more. And so, um, but in this particular situation, I remember when we first moved into the apartment, I was like, okay, um, we can go ahead and do and add certain things into this apartment because I feel like it's pretty empty. I mean, we don't necessarily have the funds to do it, but I mean, we can still do it anyway, i.e. the credit card, right? And so, um, at the time, your boy, sorry if I'm like slamming around. Uh, at the time, th this is how bad it was. Um, at the time, I didn't really understand um, the impact of my financial decisions, especially now knowing that we're both living under the same roof. And so, um, needless to say, I thought it would be a good investment to get certain things within the apartment, and then we got into debt. And the debt has lingered up until now, but um, it's, it's slowly going away. And it's led into other decisions where Lily had told me multiple times and even up till this day, um, I told you so. And I had to, no other way for me to be able to remediate the situation than saying, you know, it was a fail. I had to own up to my mistakes because if you are the one who made a mistake and you know that it's impacting someone else, you want to apologize for it. You're not just going to do something and be like, ah, you'll be good. You'll be good. Like, nah, it doesn't work like that. And so it's fun to joke about. It's, it's something dumb, but the reason I tell that story is because on a deeper level, um, have we not experienced failure on deeper areas in our life in, in a bigger setting? Um, example that I can give would be not loving our wives sacrificially um, like we promised to do, and it feels like a fail in our marriage, ongoing conflict, strife, um, and she's not thriving under your leadership. And I would say for the first couple of months, I felt like that was me. And maybe in your own relationship with God, when... Uh, you slip back into certain addictions that you said you would never do again and you start pursuing sin instead of pursuing God and the way that you used to and that doesn't doesn't that feel like a fail like you start doing stuff that you said you know what I'm not going to do this anymore and then two minutes later you start doing it again or a couple months later a year from now you're still going back into the same habits and maybe this week you felt like a fail or this past week before that or the whole year and marriage wasn't good the job situation didn't work out, and it just feels like a total failure. And so today's sermon is called, Your Failures Aren't Final. I want to stress that because um, the story that we're going to read about Peter is one of, if not the biggest fail of his entire life and his ministry, um, and we obviously know what that alludes to, but it wasn't his final failure. 
and it won't be the final failure for all of us as we progress in our walk. And I want to be able to explain what that looks like, what it is that we can grab from Peter's um, denial and what we can grab from Peter's, rede uh, Peter's redemption. And so um, here's what I want to say before I start. Uh, some of you today understand you're guilty uh, and you understand that you're broken, but don't understand the grace of Jesus Christ is greater than your sin. So some of us walk around with this cloud over our heads thinking that we've, we're so far away from God because of what we can, we've done, and it feels like we're irredeemable. And if you're a Christian, you know that's not true. You've been redeemed. And if anything, it's an encouragement for other believers to see that you're still being worked on. That's sanctification. That's a process of what you're doing every day. But it still sucks to be able to be in a situation where you feel like a failure and you failed God. But I want to break the news to you. You're always going to fail God. You're not perfect. You're imperfect. You're completely worthless outside of Jesus Christ. But because of Jesus Christ, you're made purposeful. You have a purpose, and your life is not a total failure. And so I'm here to encourage you by letting you know that the failure is real, but it isn't final, and we'll see it through the story. So two observations I want to make if you want to write this down or if you want to do anything with this is, one, our failure is real and can't be ignored. And two, our failure is real, but it's not final. So we get this by looking at Peter's story. We're going to look at his highlights and his lowlights of his ministry as well. So let's get started. Point one, although your failure isn't final, right? Um, which what we talked about from before. God doesn't dismiss sin, so he doesn't ignore it. He won't minimize it. He has to deal with it. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the imperfections of people in the Bible aren't photoshopped out. Uh, think about that for a second. Our tendency is to project more than we are. But the Bible doesn't do that. It's like Instagram and social media. You like taking snippets of your life that look nice, and then you just upload it and for people to see and be like, yo, like he's, he or she's living it up. But little do they know the imperfections and the fights and everything else that goes beyond that outside of that image or video that you display for other people to see. And, you know, the good thing about the Bible is it's raw and it's real. You don't get to see any Photoshop. There was no Instagram back in the in the AD or BC days, um, because that's obviously that's not how it worked. But the Bible's so honest and true, and it just doesn't say, here are some people to inspire you to make you better, but it's a diagnosis for humanity as it really is. You get to see how broken people really are. The most committed become the, the people who are faithless at some points in their ministry, or people who you see as heroes in the Bible are the ones who do things that you wouldn't imagine you doing, but you yourselves do them. And so in one moment, they're walking by faith and boldly proclaiming God, but you flip the page and it's just another story. You get to see parts of, of people's lives where you're just like, how did that even happen? From kings to prophets to disciples, you get it all. And we're not strong, but weak, and we need a savior. And they realized that, Peter realized that, and that's what we're going to jump into. So let's look at Peter by zooming in on John 18. If you guys can open your Bibles up or your Bible apps, um, we're going to be in John 18, uh, verses 17 through 18. And then later on, we're going to go and uh, jump over some parts in that uh, particular chapter. And then we're going to be in John 21. Because I do want to uh, not just leave you with just what he did wrong, but what happened after once he was redeemed. So whenever you guys are there, I'll start now. So the thing that had the power to hunt him to the very end, we're going to check that out now. But we don't meet Peter here, but in the beginning. Peter's in a small fishing village. We know a little bit about his backstory. Um, he was catching some fish, and Jesus walks up to him, and he's like, yo, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And so Peter's like, bet, let's go. And so one of the coolest things ever about Peter is that 
Um, and a lot of good friends of mine have told me, yo, you're just like Peter, you're really hype, but um, sometimes you don't make like rational decisions. And I know I don't. So uh, that's that's one of the traits about that I see about myself and Peter. That's why when I look at the story, I'm like, yo, like that sounds like me. Um, <laughs> but when I read this, I'm just like, man, uh, you get to see that Peter is in this transitional stage from being with Jesus for so long. And then you get to see him becoming a man of God, being a disciple who's really loved by Jesus. And later you get to see who he is in leading the sheep, which Jesus says in John 21, to lead them. And that's primarily other people who are going to be discipled by him. But let's not digress and stay here for a sec. So Peter chose rightly. He left with Jesus. He left everything behind because he wanted to learn from Jesus, be in Jesus' proximity, and um, understand how his life can be changed so radically by the invitation that Jesus gave. And one of the highlights of his ministry was that after Jesus healed the sick, there was mass confusion of who Jesus was, although he told them, Peter and everybody else who he was, but in the midst of all that chaos, P Peter knew. The Spirit of God empowers Peter and he says, I know who you are, Jesus. You're the Son of God, the Christ that has come to take the sins of the world. And let me tell you, prior to what happened when he betrayed Jesus, when he denied Jesus, this guy loved Jesus. So much so that this guy pulls out a sword out of his pocket and he's just like, yo, get out of here, bro. Like, you got to scat. Like, this guy was actually trying to fend off people who arrested Jesus and the most he did was cut off somebody's earlobe. So uh, it just goes to show who Peter is. And he received the love of Jesus and reciprocated it back. And then we came to this moment, the fail of the fail moment of Peter's story. So he received what I told you, the love of Jesus. And then this is hard to look at. Like these, these are parts that you come to these moments where Peter's the first one to say, I know who you are, but these things like this happen. We have to ask ourselves, why are these moments included in the Bible? Why is it that um, the writers and the Holy Spirit who allows these writers to write these things allow us to see these portions of Scripture in a different way for us to be able to understand people mess up? And it's not just um, these holy, super holistic people. These are people like you and me. They were just chosen by God for a specific purpose to be in His ministry. And then obviously, here we are 2,000 years later, the same group of people, just different, and we all look different, and we're part of the body of Christ. So this is hard to look at. This is Jesus' disciple betraying him at the ultimate level. I'm pretty sure we don't come here to this text and say, nah, I'm not like Peter. That would be one super self-righteous of you, and you're imperfect, so you should watch your heart. But at the same time, we're just like Peter. We don't necessarily do it to Jesus directly, but like in person, but we do it to Jesus anyway. Whenever we sin, whenever we mess up, whatever we do that's offensive to God, we're spitting in his face essentially the same way Peter did. And he literally did it physically, not spitting, but you know what I mean. Um, and But we come to this text and over and over again, we see the most faithful men do the things they shouldn't. And so humanity isn't in two categories of strong and weak. It's just broken people in need of a savior. That's how, that's how I look at it. Because I, I think personally, um, even before I became a Christian, I realized I had flaws, but I just didn't want to deal with them. And I didn't think that it would be a hindrance towards anybody else. Or if it was a hindrance to someone else, I personally wouldn't care. But now as a believer, I watch out for what the things that I do and the things that I say because I know it can hurt other people or make a brother or sister stumble. And so one of the things I want you guys to ask yourselves, if you can take anything away from this up until this point, would be is, what is it that you're doing that can stumble your brother or sister? Or do you even care about what it is that you do that can cause a sinful nature of yours to come back or if it's something that has just been dormant within you even as a believer 
And I think it's very easy to be in the predicament that Peter's in simply because of how we are as people. We're broken. And so let's read um, John 18. Uh, we're going to start in verse 17 to 18 real quick. Um, let's see here. So the servant girl at the door and, you know, just to give a context, I'll read it after. But he's right now, he just escaped and he's following Jesus from afar. But here we are when we read uh, verse 17. Uh, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officer, yeah, officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with, with them standing and warming himself. And so let's give some talk, uh, context. Middle of the night, it's cold and Jesus was just arrested, right? Peter was following along next to Jesus, but at a distance because he's trying to see what's going to happen. And if he's already arrested, he's he did the first denial, right? One of three. He's 33% there. Yeah, he's 33% there. And he wants to know what's going to pan out. He's not just going to walk up and be like, yo, Jesus, I got you. Like he did when he was inside uh, the garden when they were arresting Jesus. But he's looking at it from afar at this point. So already at this point, that was like the first strike. And it's funny because the way the Bible works it's like always like a three strikes, uh, three strikes, you're out type of thing. So that may, leads me to believe that there's favoritism in baseball uh, when it comes into uh, God and the way that he views stuff. So I don't know. That's just the way I see it. It's pretty cool. Something small I didn't notice beforehand. And um, But at a distance, he's trying to see what's going to happen. He knows it's not a good situation that he's in or that Jesus is in, but he wants to know how it's going to play out, and Peter doesn't want to be noticed. That's the first thing that Peter made absolutely clear to this little girl who is completely unarmed but has unarmed him with her words. And so a teenage servant girl asks, are you a disciple? And Peter's like probably thinking, yo, dude, what are you talking about? Like, I don't know who that guy is. And so he's probably already projecting some anxiety, and she's like, Okay, that's kind of weird, but whatever, we'll let it slide. So this might go to zero to 100 like right now. And they already arrested Jesus, so they might do the same thing to, the, to me. That's what probably Peter's thinking in his head as he's looking around and he's already with these officers. Probably the officer that's right next to him is the cousin of the person who got the earlobe cut off, which it is, but we're going to get into right now. So I don't know this Jesus. First denial. Now this is crazy and so shocking because in John 13, previous to this, Jesus tells his disciple, um, where I'm going, you cannot go. And Peter's like, Yo, I appreciate you like trying to teach me something, but uh, you got it twisted. So I'm actually going to be with you wherever you go. And Jesus is like, uh, you're really not, Peter, and I'm going to prove it. And by the time that you deny me the third time, the rooster's going to crow. And Peter's like, all right, Jesus, I know you're all-knowing, but I don't think you know me. And that's kind of dumb to, to say. Could you imagine like Peter's reaction? And Jesus is like, if only you knew. If only you knew. And it's sort of like those moments um, when you see a little kid... Um, telling you, um, hey, uh, I promise I'm not going to do this if you let me do this. And then you let him do what you said you were going to allow him to do, and he does the other thing anyway. And I feel like when Jesus looks at Peter, he sees him like a little kid in that moment because he's just like, bro, what are you talking about? Like, I already know what you're going to do, and you're telling me I'm not going to do it. And I'm like, and Peter's face is probably with a straight face, yeah, I'm not going to do it. But he literally proclaimed chapters before that this is the man who is the God of the universe the Messiah, the Christ, who knows everything. But he forgot about that particular moment in time, who Jesus really was, when he specifically told him that he was going to be with him. But he was just all speaking talk and not really fulfilling his promise. So Jesus is like, I'm sorry, man, but that's not true. And Peter says, I will lay down my life for you. Funny enough, Peter tries to make action of this promise, like I told you a couple verses before this, as Jesus got arrested by swinging around. So this is to paint the picture of where he's gone. He goes from sword swinging to dodging a question from a teenage girl. 
and he's denying Jesus because he's afraid. So let's check out verses 25 to 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. That just must have been awkward. Like, yeah, I think at the moment Peter was thinking, okay, it actually happened. But at the same time, it's awkward. He's in a public setting. He realized what he did wrong. But at the same time, he's trying to avoid people and he's avoiding Jesus primarily. Yeah, you could make the argument that he's actually avoiding these people to not have them um, try to capture him and put him in the same predicament that Jesus is in. But he's really avoiding Jesus because the person he's denying is not these officers. He's denying Jesus. And when I look at that, I put myself and I think, man, like, I feel like I do that quite often. In fact, I feel like the way that I do it doesn't necessarily come out with the words that I do, but the actions that I commit. You know, if I'm in the midst of, and just to give you a, a public confession, at one of my struggles personally that I do is that I curse sometimes. And when I say sometimes, I mean a lot sometimes. Uh, and, and, it's an, and it's something that I deal with and it's a struggle that I have that I ask God to take that thorn out of my side because that's what I feel like it is. And um, I don't feel like I'm displaying Christ whenever I start cursing up a storm because of anger or because of just dropping a bomb just cause. And a lot of people are cool with that, but I'm not because I know where my struggle is. Um, for some, it could be pornography. For some, it could be addiction on drugs or whatever. But for me personally, the thorn on my side as a believer is me cursing a lot. And so I feel like I do the exact same thing and I deny Christ whenever I do this as a public in, in the public because the image is not so much the thing that I'm worried about, but it's my testimony. And it's who I'm saying that I've been redeemed by, but I'm living and doing something else that's contrary to what I say I believe in. And so remember, Jesus had promised when Peter made this promise that the rooster will crow when you deny me three times. Like I said, this is awkward. It's sinful. But I want you to let you know that Peter understood this as an absolute fail. He realized this isn't okay. I can't imagine being Peter. He had a love and affection for Jesus. Probably, and I'll, I'll probably be honest, and I think you guys could agree, he probably had the most zeal for Jesus out of all the disciples. And I can't imagine being him in that, in that predicament. I, I think when we read this and we sterilize the story because we know what happens and we know the, the, the type of mistake that he made and failed to keep his promise and we take that weight of betrayal out of this text. Imagine you being him in that situation. You were a nobody from a fishing village and the king of kings just dropped up and just like, yo, come with me. You're one of the 12. I'm going to show you what we're going to do in this ministry. You're going to stick with me until I say I'm a dip and when I dip, I'm going to come back. And he took you on a faithful journey where he showed you he had the power to heal the sick, preach messages of truth, and bring people from death to life. Not only did you believe in Jesus, but you loved and appreciated and had a friendship with him. This is this was his homie, man. Like, I don't know if you've ever been did wrong. I think I grammatically said that wrong. Anyway, um, I don't know if you've ever been wronged. There we go. Um, by someone that you loved so much. And now you're probably not friends with that person anymore. And imagine, this is the king of the universe. You're one of his disciples. You're, you're in this ministry with Jesus. And you just sold him out for your own sake. When he's selling his body, his life for you on the cross, giving himself up for your sake. 
I think when I read this personally, um, it reminds me so much of myself um, when I when I look at Peter, simply because I feel like I proclaim so much about Christ, and I and I feel like sometimes I'm some super Christian, but in reality, I'm weak, just as Peter is. And this is for you to look at and be like, okay, if you failed today, yesterday, this week, past week, past month, this whole year, th it won't get as bad as this. I can assure you that. You're not going to betray Jesus, not physically at least. So, in the Synoptic Gospels, when Peter understood the weight of his sin, he wept bitterly. It specifically says that. It broke him. He was in that place where many of us have been, where we feel dirty and just want to be cleaned. He felt the full weight of his guilt and shame and wondering, what do I do now? I blew it. There's no comeback from this in his mind. I can guarantee you in that moment, there was nothing that anybody could have told him outside of Jesus that would have made him feel any better for what he did. The only other person who felt this way and did a form of action was Judas. And the thing that led to him after doing that was killing himself. But we see two completely two completely different people, and we see two different different, jeez, two different redemption arcs, in this particular situation. One that you get to see being the rock of the church, and one that was completely separated from Christ. So this week, I want to pause real quick by giving some practical applications for our church, and this is for us specifically. First thing, in the weirdest way, I want to confess, I feel comfort in Peter's failure, and the reason why I feel comfort is because we learn about him is that. He walked with Jesus for many years, and he still had a massive failure in his life. And I think the Bible does this specifically for us to be relatable to these people. Because there's no way that you can just view this image or this story and be like, I, um, what do I do now? Like, it's not something that you just read and you're just like, okay, cool, it's a nice story. It wasn't a story. It was something that anybody can relate to. You can put yourself in Peter's shoes, and you can put X person in Jesus' shoes. Or it could be Jesus himself. So what I want to illustrate is that the greatest failure doesn't happen before a Christian, but rather when we're following Jesus. And I can assure you that. Everyone in this room has had probably one of the harder times in their lives after conversion than before being a believer. 100%. And some of you are tired and frustrated because you're trying to be a better version of yourself. And you look at your life and although you're working hard, uh, you're striving by God's grace, you're believing in God's promise, you've still fallen into failure and sin, temptation, and wondering if you're Christian. Like, how do I keep falling into the same thing again and again and again and again and again? It's personal to me because I remember when I first got converted, I thought the Christian narrative, because I hear so many testimonies in church and the people you listen to, you're supposed to believe in Jesus and it's just uphill from there. Next year, you'll be stronger, anxiety, gone, addictions, dealt with. And after a few years of following Jesus, you know what I realized? I'm still a hot mess. <laughs> Nothing has really changed. You know, don't get me wrong. Um, I, I feel like I've been gradually sanctified more so than before. And I feel like this, it's a process of which you grow every day. But that doesn't take away from me still failing God every single day. I'm not perfect. Have you done the thing you promised God? Surely I'll never do that. And you're ashamed of it and you can't believe how did I end up here again? Same fight with my wife. Same struggle here. Same compromise over there. Didn't step up into the opportunity that I had to be able to be bold about Jesus. And that's where Peter's at right now. I think in some ways, if you're tired and weary, just look at this. This is the Christian faith. 
I don't know what your expectations were about Christianity, but you never graduated from needing God's grace. And that's final. Peter blows it, he's a Christian, and boldly walks with him for the rest of his life. After this moment, this is like a super low blow for Peter, but we get to see our boy and Acts and the wonders that he does mm -hmm. with everybody else. So our hope in it isn't in ourselves, but it's in what Christ has done for us. Amen? Amen? Some of you need some comfort this morning, that we're still working our salvation out. We're in process like Peter, and yet others, you're not fighting your sin. And I want to press in some of that stuff for you. So for some, I want this to comfort, and for others, I really want the Holy Spirit to cut you up. And it's about to get Baptist real quick. I'm just kidding. Um, real talk though, isn't God holy? Has he not said, be holy as I am holy? God can't be mocked. He knows our hearts and our lives. He knows what we're trying to hide from him in the darkness. And it's going to come out to light. Whether it be to one person or to a thousand. He knows exactly what's going on in your heart. So for some of us, we're not weeping and broken over our sin. So maybe you're a little embarrassed or you don't understand. You didn't sin against someone else. But primarily you sinned against God, a righteous and holy God, the God of the universe. And I think that's the one thing that sometimes we forget to remember because whenever we sin, we think about, oh, you know what? It's actually not hurting anybody or we're not really going to make any real change towards someone's day because of what we did. But little did you know that the person who's been looking at you the entire time and knew what you were going to do beforehand is the God of this universe. Mm -hmm. And you sinned against him, no one else. Because you can always... At physically say sorry to someone but I feel like at least to me correct me if I'm wrong if someone feels this way I feel like when I say sorry to God it's not the same like that you can say towards the person in front of you sometimes I, I feel like that and it's a distorted truth because that's not what it is whenever you pray to God you know that you've been redeemed before you even come to Jesus he already knows that his grace is sufficient for you and you should know that but I feel like in the moment I feel trapped in myself and I say it doesn't matter what I'm gonna say to God I feel like I'm not gonna be um, excused for this or something like that because I feel like sometimes the stuff that I do I just you know like Peter what the heck do you do from there like what can you say that can really change the way that other people look at you or primarily number one God so some people in here are probably flirting cultivating entertaining and sitting in unrepented sin as if it doesn't matter and it would be good and wise to heed what Peter did in this particular moment. And we get to see that at the end of the book, he's not the same man. So there's hope. But I want to call you to declare war to the very thing that is hindering your intimacy with Jesus. You guys all know what that is. I don't have to ask. I don't have to know. You personally know exactly what it is that you're dealing with that is hindering your intimacy with Jesus. Whether it be sexual impurity, whether it be a specific addiction, whether it be your spouse, whether it be yourself, whether it be a job, whether it be anything you yourself know exactly what's hindering your intimacy with christ and you need to kill that you need to remove it it's a cancer that won't go away without you just letting it be itself if you're not doing anything with it it's just going to linger there forever and if you're not being repentant of your sin if you're not going to a brother and sister and saying yo i'm struggling with this i need help there's a problem and you'll always be in a problem like that we call it what it is we repent actively and say i don't want to live in this and we fight for holiness in our life I don't know what that thing is in your life, like I'd mentioned, but I have a sense that people in here might be hiding sin, just as I might be as well. You don't know that. I'm preaching this to you, but I got three fingers pointing back at me as well. But that's where we need to be able to sit in a place where we know that 
Christ is sufficient, His grace is sufficient, but we should not mock God. We shouldn't put Him in a situation or make ourselves feel like we put Jesus in a situation where it's okay to be able to sin. So can I call you to repentance? God is holy. A fail is a fail. Sin is sin. There is grace, so much grace. And I want us to be able to be a people who are committed to imaging the God who created us and pursuing holiness by His grace and the empowerment of His Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. So point number two, our failures aren't final. Imagine finishing here, right? I'm done. I'm just playing. If I were to finish here and we weren't able to know um, the... What, what holds in chapter 21, this would be a sad story to end in. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine Peter being like mm -hmm. stuck in this predicament and then we wouldn't be able to see what he does in Acts. Um, another mess up that he does in Galatians, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, there's so much stuff that would have been removed from history. And honestly, I think we wouldn't be where we're at and the Bible wouldn't be in our hands if it wasn't for what would have come up next. That would be terrible, but it's not the end of the story. In fact, God comes back into the story and redeems it by showing us our failures are real, but aren't final. This is where we take our eyes off Peter and look at the other character of the story that is Jesus. If you read your Bible and open it up and read these verses, what I'm about to say, the, and how the Holy Spirit organized so well, this thing is, you see Peter's denial of Jesus one time, then it pans over Jesus who's being put on trial, then it zooms back to Peter again and shows the second and third denial of Jesus. So what's happening is the contrast between Peter and Jesus, the guilty and the innocent. And I wanna show you some observations that I listed out here. Um, one, Peter's trying to protect himself. Two, Jesus is preparing to pour out his life. Two, or the second uh, portion, Peter's denying his relationship to Jesus. Jesus is courageously facing off his opposition for the good of Peter. Three, Peter has been unfaithful to do what he said. Jesus is being faithful to do the very thing he said he would do. And last, Peter is sinning and Jesus is readying himself to die for sinners. This is crazy. When I read this, it's no question that God organizes scripture the way he wants us for us to be able to understand. But when you read this for what it is, it, point, it paints the picture of you and Jesus. You get to see, obviously, in this specific example, Peter and Jesus. But just remove Peter out of the question. Insert yourself within these comparisons. We are completely sinful, broken people. There is nothing that we can do to be able to make ourselves feel right, righteous, or anything of the sort compared to Jesus. But what Jesus does next is crazy. There's this contrast and it's beautiful. So you're asking yourself, maybe you've been in that place or maybe you'll know you'll be in that place, but you're asking, what do I do with my guilt and shame? Well, the hope that we have is not this, that we do better next time or it's okay, we can try a bit harder or make a deal with God that in 2020, your effort's gonna be 100 times better than this year. But rather lay these things at the feet of the cross where we look upon the innocent one who has died for the guilty, just like they did to Peter. The only person who in the history of the world that hasn't failed, who hasn't tasted guilt and shame on his own deeds is Jesus. The amazing thing about the gospel is that instead of punishing us for our failures, he puts it upon himself. I'll take on the wrath that you're experiencing so you could experience grace. That's what motivated Jesus to go to the cross. So for this upcoming year, I don't know what your hope is. You'll most likely get into these places that we mentioned earlier, marriage issues, sin, compromise. But when you do, remember, about this hope. This is for you. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus was doing. This is what he was trying to show. That's why it, it clicked in Peter's mind. Yes, there was bitter weeping, but he understood exactly what the, where this was going to go. 
And if at that moment of doubt that Peter had in his mind, if Jesus really came back, we knew exactly what would happen. Peter knew exactly what would happen. And this is where we get into later. So here we see Jesus pursuing Peter and starting a conversation with him to clear up these things. Let's look at John 21 verses 15 through 19. John 21 verses 15 through 19. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he had said to him, follow me. Do you see the change? Do you see the complete 360 in the story? One of the things that strikes to me is that Peter isn't crawling back to Jesus. But Jesus pursues Peter, pursuing reconciliation, moving towards someone who failed at an epic level, and moving towards someone who has nothing to offer. This brings me comfort and hope because when we sin, I think to myself, God isn't moving towards me but away from me. I mean, he's not pressing in and pursuing me in my brokenness. He's got to be pulling away and is exhausted, disappointed, frustrated, and he's ready to give up. But it's actually the contrary. That's not the God of the Bible. Our God is steadfast in his love. He is slow to anger. He is patient and he's kind with his kids. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Can we start to believe rightly about the God that we worship? Because if we don't do it now, when will we? All of these doubts show up when you're weak and wondering if God has grace for you and for me. So let's go back to this again. So three times there's a denial and three times there's this affirmation. And for a reason, it's to continue a conversation because it ended abruptly for Peter, but it continues on here with seeing Jesus again. Jesus asked, do you love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know everything. You're an all-knowing God and you know my story. You know exactly who I am. And in that place, Jesus receives this humble man's posture and says, then go feed my sheep. This is more than just a moment where two dudes hug it out because of a relational drama. This is a scandalous invitation from Jesus. First lie I heard when I fell into guilt and shame was, man, my paradigm of the gospel is going to be tested. Is God's grace sufficient for me or is it for somebody else? The second lie that paralyzes Christians is maybe God will tolerate us and forgive us, but surely he doesn't have a purpose and plan for our lives. Like maybe it was so bad that we got disqualified and it took ourselves out of the game for being able to serve or being able to do anything. So I don't know about you, but I have heard that lie paralyze more Christians than anything else. It's like you have a stain on your resume. It doesn't matter what it is that you do. Now you don't feel capable or able to do anything for God's cause because of what you've done. And some of you guys are here today because there's been some addiction in the past and some things didn't go as they thought they should go. Like I mentioned in the first two questions before. And because of that, you have sat in your guilt and shame and you've received 
grace from your sin, but you have not believed God can use you because you thought that there was a better candidate for the job. And I want to take a moment and use this particularly for our church because I did say um, for our church, one of the things I wanted to be so personal about as we come into this new year is to not feel as if you're incapable of doing anything. I don't know how I can stress this more than I think I can, but there might be someone in this room who is more capable to do certain things in ministry than me, Danny, or anybody else can. And the only reason why you may not want to do it is because you feel guilty or shameful or feel as if you're incapable of doing anything. Please don't feel that way. The only reason why we, co we, we exist as a church is to be able to lift up everyone else, to be brothers and sisters together, and to grow up in, a, in, a, in an, an environment that's built solely on glorifying God. And the way that we do that is incorporating ourselves in ministry. It doesn't have to be big. doesn't have to be small. No one has to know that you're serving. It could be the small things. But God sees that. And I want you to be able to say, as we jump into 2020, in your heart, how can I help the church that I'm in to be able to glorify Christ better? Let me tell you this. Uh, your sin and shame in the moments of your story that you're most ashamed of is oftentimes the very ones God will use to bring hope to weary people. For you, it might be the worst thing, but for others, it gives them hope. It gives them the opportunity to say, you know what, man, I feel like I'm in that specific situation right now. Is it really true that I can get grace? I can receive grace? I can jump into this area where you are right now so that I can grow? Absolutely. And I need to insert this right here. The best missionaries and bold witnesses for Jesus Christ in the world is what Jesus is telling Peter. Go feed my sheep. Listen, be about my purposes, Peter. I haven't been exhausted by you. I'm not done working through you. What he's saying here is, listen, your brokenness does not disqualify you. It prepares you. God loves using broken, weak people. And you know why? Because that's all he has to work with. There's no one else that's better than anybody else. This is all he has. And even then, he still says, that's more than enough. He uses you for things that you couldn't even imagine. So you want to be a great witness? You want to feed my sheep? You want to be somebody that's used by God in a mighty way? You need to get low before God and understand that you don't need to cover up that sin and shame. That's the very thing he wants to enter into and redeem and set you up to tell a story that gives hope to the watching world. Before I continue, I want to understand, like, do you guys feel what I'm talking about here? Because I feel like when I read this, it get, I feel like there's so much relatable content that I put into myself when I see it simply because I've experienced it. I'm pretty sure you guys have experienced this as well. Where you're in a situation where you feel like you're helpless and you can't do anything or that there's too much stuff for you to bear that God wouldn't want to bear. Please don't feel like that. There's nothing more sad. That's the best way to put it. There's nothing more sad for me to see than a fellow brother or sister saying that they don't feel good enough to be able to walk and be in the midst of other believers. And it hurts because I genuinely care about you guys. And I want to be able to see um, people really 
being a part of other people's lives in such a way that it's it's not about just hanging out and chilling out, but it's just growing. It's reading the word. It's it's praying over each other. It's checking on how everyone is doing. It's not wasting time and, and just playing video games or just being able to just hang out and use that as a pastime to not do the stuff that's important. This is the most important thing you'll have in your life. Nothing else holds more value than what God gives you through his word. Nothing. It doesn't matter who preaches it. It doesn't matter who talks about it. The fact that you can read this and it speaks by itself is the most important thing, the only thing you'll ever need in this life. And what God tells us to do through this is to us give that same hope to someone else. Because you're still a failure. You suck. I suck. But guess what? God uses that. He looks at you and he says, I don't care how you are. You're not clean, but I'll make you clean. You're incapable, but I'll make you capable. It doesn't matter what season you're in. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what you're going to go through. God still looks at you and says, I want you. I want a relationship with you. Why else would he die on a cross? You think it was for show? I look at that. I look at, at this story. And it reminds me of, of so much opportunity that we have as believers to be able to look past our sin and say, you know what? This is the story I'll give to people who don't know his story. How can we bring him or, or her to God, to, to the feet of Christ? And this is a story that brought me hope as a Christian now that I think about it. This is my story. I don't come from the right home or the right background. I've blown it before and after becoming a Christian. In fact, I shouldn't even be in here. The way I've lived my life up until I became a believer, I would have never expected myself being part of the church. And reading this, there's still hope. Let me close with this. I just want us to continue to grow this upcoming year. Um, let's go to war together. And let's be a people who are ready to accept failure, repent, know that God's grace is sufficient, and proclaim his goodness like Peter did. Because you get to see that at the end. You know everything about me, Peter says. He didn't start off his conversation with Jesus again saying, yo, I'm sorry. Yo, I promise. There's no more empty promises because Jesus knows he can't fulfill them outside of him. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And at that point, Jesus said, go. So are you a Peter in that moment right now? Do you feel as if you're incapable? Or you think your sin is too much for you to be able to handle? If that's you right now, good. I'm glad you feel that way because you're not supposed to handle sin on your own. You can't, in fact. The only person who has finished that, who has literally said, I'm done, I've, I've completed it, it's over, I've dealt with sin, is Jesus. And he's inviting you that today. He wants you to partake in that. He wants you to be a part of the people who are hungry for, for ministry, hungry for the mission and the only way to be able to be a part of that is jumping and doing a leap of faith. I don't know how much time any of us have here on earth. Uh, a lot of people don't like talking about that, but I'm going to just keep it real. Um, if you're not part of the fold now, starting today, it's not promised tomorrow. I want you to take advantage of what God has to offer. This isn't a pitch. This is life. This isn't me trying to sell you something. This isn't me trying to tell you that your life is going to be better. Obviously not. Look at Peter. 
he struggled. And if you're not struggling, there's a problem. You need to struggle to be able to understand what it is that's good on the other side. Because the only side that there is is Jesus. So I conclude my message with that. Um, I'm going to pray and ask for specific um, wants that I want for this church and for everybody individually because I feel like um, the end of this, the time that we have for the rest of this month as we come into the new year, as Danny said, um, is pivotal for the life of our church. I think we need to be in a place where our hearts are aligned with, um, with each other for whatever move God has for us, for this church, whether it be to continue as refuge or to merge or whatever it is, I want to know that we're still doing it together as one family, as one body. And the only way that we'll be able to do that is that if we're in his word, if we're praying, we're meditating on it day and night, because otherwise we're just fooling ourselves. It'll show if you care about this church in the next couple of months. And the only way for you to be able to show that and forget about to anybody else but to God <coughs> is that if you're in his word, if you're praying, if you're repenting about your sin, it's difficult, it's not easy, but the fact that you have everyone in here as a helping arm to be able to help you through that process is more than what I could ask for. I hope you guys were encouraged by Peter's story as I was because this is our story. This is what we can place ourselves in and say and look at and say, you know what, I know where I was, I know where I'm at, and I know where I want to be. But I can only do that through Christ. Let's pray. God, um, you know the shame and guilt and sins that we deal with on a daily basis, Father. And I pray that um, you allow us to see that, but not keep it to ourselves that you give us the strength to uh, be repentive and to want to be able to grow in your word and lean on a brother or sister when times are hard because it's not easy, God. Um, I pray for this church, for the congregants of this church, for each and individual person who's here and who's not here so that they look at the story and they look at themselves in it. And the first thing that they want to learn towards is